Where are we? What? Here we go. <laughs> hey, everybody. <laughs> Welcome to the Gate Crasher podcast. I am Kenny, he, him. And I'm David, he, him. And here at the Gate Crasher podcast, we believe that tabletop gaming is for everyone. And that gatekeeping, limiting access to information and participation, by the way, is the domain of the knave and the fool. We just saw an example mm. of that this very morning. Oh, Lord. Yeah. And we hope through sharing our experiences and enthusiasm that we can get a conversation started and crash through the proverbial gates that may be holding you back from getting into tabletop gaming. So be sure to follow us and leave a review on your favorite platform. And if you want to hear more and have something to say today, our conversation is about lore bloat. Yeah. <laughs> we, this has been a long teased episode at Gatecrasher. I think we talked about it and set in like our episode zero or episode one. I believe so. I believe so. Outrageous. Yeah. But, but it's going to be a long one, ironically. <laughs> <laughs> but well, that's just our metaphysical expression of lore bloat, right? We're, mm. we're commenting on lore bloat by having a bloated topic. Ooh. Yes. Yes. Very deep. <laughs> we're the, oh God, I'm trying to think of what, I don't know, good directors. <laughs> I can't. We may have cut this out, but I was like, oh, this is like our Lars von Trier movie. (laughs) Definitely not. I'd say it's, God, I hope not. Yeah, this is our David Lynchian meta-commentary on the phenomenon of how lore tends to metastasize and self-replicate. But I guess before Mm. we get into that... Yes. What kind of games are we playing these days? Oh, good question. Oh, we wrapped up Monster Hearts. I'm stealing that one now. We wrapped up Monster Hearts. <laughs> Very satisfactory. Loved it. 10 out of 10. Would play again. Yes, um, I believe you said it was the... Did you say it was the best game you've ever been in? Something like it that. Was the best, yeah, it was the best campaign I've ever played in. All right. Or probably ran. I don't know. Participated it's just in, good, in general. Participated in, yeah. Mm-hmm. I, and I think a lot of that has to probably do with the fact that you go into a game like Monster Hearts or anything that's really powered by the apocalypse and you know that there's an end in sight. The game tells you when it's done. So being able to see that end in sight from the beginning allows you to hit the ground running do all the stuff that you want to do. Like, mm-hmm. you know, you're on a time crunch mm-hmm. almost with your game. And I'll have more to say about that in our esoteric order of role players wrap up episode. Yes. So I don't want to, I don't want to give too much away now, but mm-hmm. yeah, that. And then let me think here. I don't know. I think that's about it. Honestly, I haven't been doing the solo one ring stuff for a while. I just hit the ground with that. Not in a good way, in a bad way. And it has nothing to do with the system. It's purely my mental health. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then when it comes to Wargaming. I haven't been doing a ton of wargaming either, but I did just last night finish slash start and finish um, a couple models for Warhammer Age of Sigmar. I painted the Vendensts, <laughs> the Galen Vendensts and his daughter Duralia Vendensts. They're just like this witch hunter father daughter team. 
who work for the Order of Azir. So they're witch hunters. They hunt and banish endless spells. They look for heretics who speak out against Sigmar and chaos cults and stuff like that. They're very cool. And I love them. And uh, the new Warhammer Underworld models that came out that were revealed, it was like a whole Order of Azir gang. Ooh. I was like, it dude, got my blood pumping so hard for witch hunters, which it always is. So yeah, I was like, I have to paint these. I have to paint these guys. And so I just... I reprimed one of them. <laughs> I reprimed wow. Galen and then, yeah, and then and primed up Duralia and then just painted them up. That's it for me, David, as far as the <laughs> the gaming front. What about you? So on the wargaming front, I'll start with wargaming. I mentioned before that I was working on those Anglo-Danes for Saga. And mm. so I am continuing to do, which I'm patting myself on the back for my follow through on that. Very nice. Yeah, I've gotten them primered and have started to lay down some paint. So if I continue in my normal fits and starts, I don't know. I might actually have them done very soon. So this is a oh this is a notice. I'm putting you on blast to get your Vikings <laughs> sorted out. Oh, Lord. <laughs> I've actually had to I had to stop assembling models because I have nowhere to put them. That's not a that's not a me problem. That's a you problem. Right. So. <laughs> you're right. You're right. Thank you for holding me accountable. <laughs> not my circus, not my monkeys. Right. Anyway, as you say, though, we did wrap up Monster Hearts. And yes, so we will be we're going to be doing two things on the esoteric order uh, feed. For those of you who are not over there, we're going to do one on one evaluations that are going to be patron only content. And then we're also going to do a little wrap up, a group wrap up that'll go out on the main feed. So for folks who want to hear our thoughts and opinions on Monster Hearts, there will be material for patrons and non patrons alike coming out once the Monster Hearts series proper wraps up, which will be in a uh, let's see. Probably about two or three weeks from when this episode drops, I think. So, yeah. But other than that, I am looking forward to the next game, which is Ryotama Mm. that Aro and Rainey will be running. And also, I'm going to be playing in a duet game of GURPS Supers, which we've (laughs) talked before about how the superhero genre is my white whale. So I'm looking forward to that. And I... I'm anticipating running GURPS for the main esoteric order feed either later this year, or maybe next year, depending on when we get to it. So it's mm-hmm. good to get in, get some GURPS time under my belt as That's well. Right. But I'm really actually pretty stoked about that. That's going to be a lot of fun. And those episodes are going to go out on the Patreon feed on the esoteric order for those who want to listen to it. Yeah, that's what's going on for me right now. Games played. Nice. Okay. That sounds, sounds pleasant. It is pleasant. I'm into it. Yeah. Yeah. All right. So let's jump in. To, mm-hmm. Oh, wait. We have a call from beyond. A call from beyond. <laughs> Never gets old. No. All right. Here, all right. So here's one. Let's listen to this one. Hello, it is Desiree from Santa Fe, New Mexico once again. I was having some more thoughts about Roses and Thorns, and I was curious if you felt that folks could really be honest um, in their evaluation if the GM is sitting there right in front of them. 
Um, I, I think there's something to be said for anonymous evaluation. I think that people can be more honest and um, they would feel maybe a little less concerned about hurting the feelings of the GM who spent time facilitating um, a game or their fellow players who are there for different reasons from, from their own. Um, and let's say if the person's like, well, your style kind of rubs me the wrong way, but I'm still willing to play with you because I enjoy spending time with you, that kind of stuff. Um, I'm just curious if you feel like this is like a, if this is a real, like an actual helpful evaluation tool or just wishful thinking. Hmm. Interesting. Now these are live slug reactions right now because we haven't, we haven't <laughs> pre-listed, we haven't pre-listed to these. Just right off the cuff, I would say that I tend to agree with that, especially something we didn't really discuss on with the safety tools is that there could be like sort of cultural differences, like different different nationalities or just different like sort of cultural groups have different standards when it comes to honesty or like how you express mm -hmm. that, which is I think where one of the places where the X card came from. Because some people either because of how they were raised, the culture they come from, or just their own personality are like, I tell it like it is, I don't care. Right. Whereas, but I think a lot of people are, I don't want to say anything. <laughs> Even expressing positivity, that can be a cultural difference or again, like an environmental difference. Uh, I don't, it's embarrassing to praise somebody in front of other people, so I don't want to do it. So I think that safety tools definitely have to be calibrated to your group. Obviously, in a convention situation, that's different since you don't, you have no idea who these people are. But I would also say that because you're strangers at a convention, people might be a little more prone to speak their minds at the end. If you're like, right. you know, hey, how can I do what can I do better in the future, future convention games or whatever. And that's more like uh, feedback, right? That's that's like uh, customer right. feedback almost. But no, I, I think especially in this day and age of digital survey tools like SurveyMonkey and that kind of thing. It's very easy to set up anonymous feedback. That's actually something I have done here and there in the past is set up anonymous mm. playtest feedback when I'm playtesting scenarios and stuff. Even if it's I'm running the scenario, I want people to feel like they can speak their minds about what they didn't like because they might think I'm your friend. I don't want to be rude or whatever. So I think you can definitely apply that to Roses and Thorns if you wanted to. I don't know. What do you think? You've had more experience with Roses and Thorns, so. Yeah, I guess I... If I feel like my group is having trouble getting the ball rolling on roses and thorns, I will often do them myself first just to set the tone. And I'm also I also make sure that I I comment on and reinforce whether I agree or disagree. It, but it's typically not agree or disagree when some when somebody say, for example, you have a thorn in my game and you're like, actually, I, I didn't like how this situation played out. I would say, oh, OK, what did you like about that? And then we'll talk about it for a moment and then I'll be like, oh, OK, cool. Like, I I agree or I see where you're coming from. Thanks. I know that's probably not easy for a lot of people, but I guess I'm the my career is built on valuable feedback. Like, I know how to take criticism, mm -hmm. especially when I'm asking for it. Mm -hmm. And I think that's a skill that a lot of people should probably work on developing yeah. is just like asking for honest feedback, encouraging and giving honest feedback, because I'm not here to take every, I'm not here to take your thorns personally and then roll around in your roses. I'm here to I'm here to under I'm here to a make make running the game better, both 
for you as entertainment and for me as a what I consider a craft. And I'm here to I'm here to listen to you and facilitate a game. And and it's a, a game. It's something that I think we're all here together to blow off some steam and have some fun, regardless of genre. And yeah, that I think critical feedback and understanding the feed and being able to take the feedback. I think it's just obviously you have like you say, you have a lot more practice with that. And a lot of people don't. It's a skill. At the end of the day, what are you actually getting out of it? I think is the point. If everyone's just being polite. Right. Uh, you know, what's the old God, I'm dating myself so badly here. The intro from the MTV's The Real World series, right? <laughs> what happens when people stop being polite and start getting real? My God. <laughs> Love it. I'm here to I'm here to represent Gen X. Representation is Thank important. You. That's right. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but you know, I mean I think you can facilitate a movement in that direction. And like I said, it's going to really depend on the sort of cultural mix at your gaming table. So if you have a lot of right. people at the table, who, if you have a majority of people at the table or you have even one or two people at the table who are leading by example, to get back to an earlier bit of feedback on that, mm -hmm. modeling behavior, you can probably get to that point pretty quickly. However, if everyone's being shy about it, I think you can definitely start with anonymous feedback in some fashion and then... Once, as people get used to providing that feedback, you could then maybe float the idea at some point of, do we want to start just doing this at the table? Is that easier for right. everybody? Because I do right. think ultimately that is the best way to do it because then you can have a conversation as opposed to like individual, like that's fine with play, play testing. I actually want to hear each individual's thoughts untainted by other people's opinions. But when it comes to just workshopping things, and like you say, it is a craft issue. You do want to improve your craft. Yeah, I think that is the goal. But getting there might require some more gentle approach, I think, for some people. Yeah. It's funny because like asking and encouraging that kind of live criticism to somebody is very, is more natural for me personally. And asking for anonymous feedback is mm. way scarier to me. Interesting. <laughs> See, there yeah. you go. Because, you yeah, because I'm like, I don't know who said this. I don't know <laughs> where they're coming from. I don't know. I don't know. There's something about that that scares me. It's like a bad Yelp review or something. Oh, <laughs> see, there you go. Yeah. So everyone yeah. has their different perspective on things. Of course, the yeah. thing I never tell them is that usually if it's my own group, I can tell who wrote it because everyone right. writes in their own voice anyway. <laughs> Definitely. So I usually have an idea, at least like between maybe two people. It's like, this is either so-and-so or so-and-so. Right. Most of the times, like, yeah, that's, I know who that is. You know me, because it would be like LMAO. LMAO. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Jesus Christ. <laughs> All right. You want to do another one? Let's do another one. Live slug reaction. That's right. Hello. So, Desiree again from Santa Fe. So, I uh, was listening to uh, the Wargaming Part 2. And in the beginning, you were talking about fluff and crunch, and that's a whole other conversation. But um, you were talking about the character creation suggestion that I made, like having character creation episodes. And you're talking about how, like, having a more intensive um, character creation session is is better. You mentioned something called Zero Engine. Don't know what that is. Can you please explain what that is? Uh, Googling provide no information there. So um, 
the that's one thing. The other piece to it is that y'all just played in the Monster Hearts campaign. Character creation maybe took 15 minutes each. Um, and then you got to know your character in a different way throughout the game. So I'm curious if you're, what your thoughts are about that. The Year Zero engine, maybe yes. that's why it, it didn't. It, not that maybe there was an e- editing issue there, but the Year Zero engine comes from Free League Publishing's Mutant Year Zero, which is their big flagship role-playing game that I actually haven't played but I've played a hundred games using its core engine. And yeah, the the character creation there is a little, it's somewhere between probably like D&D and some kind of Powered by the Apocalypse game. So something like Monster Hearts and D&D, somewhere between that in terms of crunch slash complication. And I think while David and I both do the intensive character creation, say, for example, Call of Cthulhu, Mm-hmm. Um, for me, what I get out of what I get out of like Monster Hearts character creation is the collaborative, like around the table. We are developing the town. We're developing our relationships, and this stuff is facilitated by the game rules instead of just something that we just decide to do because we know it's fun. Mm. What do you think, David? Yeah, I agree. We did touch on the Year Zero engine, but in kind of a roundabout way uh, in that one episode, I think. So we'll we'll have to come back to it for sure. I think that definitely deserves a system spotlight, either generally about the system or specifically to one of the iterations that you like or both. That being said, I do not have personal experience with the Year Zero thing, but based on what you were saying about it, that's that was my take on it was that it was a medium a light to medium system. Yeah. As for, yeah, as for the Monster Hearts thing. So I just wanted to, yeah, I think it's just want to make it clear that I do enjoy a lighter character creation system from time to time, particularly if it's tied in with mechanics that are going to help you develop your character while you play. So I think that's why with Monster Hearts and Powered by the Apocalypse in general, it works. And in fact, this was the first like extended Powered by the Apocalypse game campaign, I should say, that I've played in. Usually they've been shorter and I had read people saying, oh, no, you really do have to give it at least eight sessions for it to really shine. And I completely agree with that. I feel like that is built into the system and that is why character creation is so uh, brief is it wants to just get you into the game right away and start playing because you're going to essentially the campaign and character creation are the same thing when it comes to right. Powered by the Apocalypse. By the time you're done with the campaign, that's when you have your fully formed character, you know? Definitely. Definitely. 100%. Whereas I have spent probably about eight hours on this GURPS character that I'm going to be playing. <laughs> There was like a three to four hour character creation session that was preceded by maybe two or three hours of preparatory work on my part. And then Uh I've been noodling and fiddling with the numbers since then, probably to the tune of an hour or two altogether. Now, this is all spread out over the period of two weeks. So this was not me sitting down for eight hours to make a character. And this was completely voluntary on my part in that I wanted to spend a lot of time on this character in terms of like literally deciding which 
single character point out of a budget of 250 was going to go in this skill versus that skill. But it was very intentional on my part because it was that was the fun of it. And recognize that's not for everybody. That is the fun part, especially with GURBS, because it's a toolkit system. So it can be as light or as deep as you want it to be. And I went deep Mm -hmm. on it. I was like looking at all the different kind of imbuements and modifiers and all this other stuff like what special attacks can i build for this character you're literally building your own game mechanics for this character out of the different parts that you're assembling wow yeah that's at the other extreme and that means i'm coming into this campaign with a pretty fully formed idea of who this character is already right and then we're gonna see how that fully formed idea interacts with whatever activities are going to be thrown at me, events and (laughs) complications and whatnot. And the fun thing about GURPS is that you can take disadvantages that actually generate story. So like I have an enemy disadvantage where the GM rolls at the beginning of every session to see if that enemy is going to show up that session or awesome. That kind of thing. You're building in story generating elements there as well. But it's more based off of a fully formed idea of who this character is rather than discovering it in play. And I honestly think there's a lot of it. We live in an age of equivocation as well as an age of extremes, right? You know, because because, <laughs> you know, you see that a lot. People are like, hey, it, you know, whatever is valid, you know, like however you want right. to approach is valid. And I think sometimes that deserves to be interrogated a little bit. But in this case, I would actually say that applies because I really do feel like those are equally valid approaches. They're just different right. experiences. Yes. Yeah. Different experiences. Exactly. And th- there's something to say about that kind of for that in that example, comparing two completely different systems and being like, yeah, you can definitely prefer one over the other mm-hmm. versus taking one system and being like, yeah, you can do however you want, man. It's like, okay, yeah. are you sure? <laughs> yeah. If you were trying to do a group style character creation with your Powered by the Apocalypse character, it just exactly that's <laughs> just asking for trouble. Or if you're trying to play D&D in space. Anyways. <laughs> Shots fired. I feel like we need a third person on the show, at least occasionally, to be our sort of like D&D ambassador. You know, like somebody right. who will speak to the game as well as yeah. take drive-by shots at it like we do it's easy it's an easy target but mm. i'm sure we'll have good things that we might do we honestly we're gay crashers we should do a D episode we should Absolutely. do a 5e episode and we will and it will be it will have some criticisms but it will also have praise because not everything in D is trash i think that there's <laughs> not every wow wow yes <laughs> be careful how generous you are in your praise there jesus i know i don't let to let you down I am forged in realistic criticism. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, no, I, you came into the hobby through D&D and D&D style fantasy, and you played that for a very long time. I, I know we've talked about that, but just bears repeating. I will always love D&D in certain ways in my heart, like right. the expressions of how I used to play it, which is not... Mm-hmm how it's often played today, which I think is my main issue. I'm just, it's like old man syndrome. You know, it's right. like, well, in my day, you got experience points for leveling up. You didn't have these <laughs> milestone levels. So that's more where I'm coming from. But I think, yeah, I just, when it, you know, this is a core concept that I'm just throwing out there. But it's for me, it's, I just think that there's more to RPGs than D&D. And that's all I would say. I it's agree. Like, yeah, that it's, I'm not dumping on d and I'm just saying, don't try to make it what it isn't and play other games and have fun. Or yeah. 
if you want to play D&D all the time, that's cool, too. But again, don't try to shoehorn it into things that it's not meant to be. I actually. Yeah. And before we move on to today's subject, one last the little thing that I saw recently about the about the whole D&D thing, mm-hmm. always looking at like the sunk cost fallacy and all that shit. Somebody there was some like crazy Twitter poll recently that I saw t- thousands of replies or whatever. Mm-hmm. It was like the majority of the people were like, yeah, I would play something else, but I've already spent. What would they say? What was it? OK, so, yeah, it was basically just sunk cost fallacy, dude. Yeah. It was all these people being like, I would love to play other old RPGs. But I've already spent all this time learning D&D. Right. As if every other role playing game is as complicated and all it's this a, kind of thing. It's a self-fulfilling prophecy. Yes. yes. And I think that's part of what we're doing here is if. You gentle listener happen to be one of those people. We are here to tell you or please pass this on to a friend who might feel this way that D&D by the standards of most tabletop RPGs is a hard to learn and be expensive. Yeah. Uh, yes. Many, many more RPGs out there. You can learn in an afternoon of play or even just in an evening of paging through the rule book and the rule book, the single rule book is all you need to play. And you're yeah. going to be dropping 30 or 50 bucks on that and you're good to go. So yeah. anyway, yeah, yeah. David and I talk a lot about our love for crunch. Yes. But today we're talking about our love for the fluff. Magical chimes. <laughs> today we're talking about lore bloat at TM. This is. I am going to trademark that. This is. Yeah, we one definitely of the need few to. things I've ever coined in my life. So I'm holding on to it <laughs> desperately so, for validation. So. Exactly. Yeah, for posterity, we're going to do that. But we're passing it on to you, listener, and lore bloat. Yes. What, what do we mean by what do we mean by lore? It is the fictional history of a is it fictional? I don't know if it's fictional. It's maybe just like the history of a thing. So not to be too much like a high school oral presentation, but Merriam-Webster defines lore as <laughs> um, Nice. A particular body of knowledge or tradition. So that's what you're saying is people will say neighborhood lore says that such and such about the Boo Radley house or whatever. And so lore and it says knowledge or tradition. So lore can be fictional. Lore can be mistaken. Lore can be inaccurate. Lore can also be factual. And so when you apply it to a gaming context, my understanding when people say lore What I take that to mean is the sort of collected body of knowledge regarding the non-mechanical aspects of a game. So you would talk about the geography of a fantasy world and its religions and its politics and its legends and its important people and all that kind of stuff. That's lore, which, as we've discussed before, is also sometimes called fluff, although nowadays you don't see that as often. Yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. Is that a fair way of summing it up? Is it in a game yeah, context? I, yeah. yeah, I think that nails it on the head, honestly. So when did this start in tabletop gaming? Has it been around since the beginning? I'm glad you asked. So one of the things that we came up with joking around when we were playing Shark Practice last year, <laughs> was we were referring to the history of the American Revolution as the lore of the American right. Revolution. 
Yeah, I was like, what's the lore of the Queen Rage? Yeah, exactly. What's, yeah. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Just before we get into that, I'll just say lore can also be applied to subcategories, right? So you could say, what is the lore of this right. world? But you could also say, what is the lore of this Order of Wizards, for example? Yes, okay. or Regiment of British Soldiers. Or Regiment of British Soldiers. <laughs> and that is the thing. That So that is the original lore, quote unquote, because tabletop gaming, role-playing games, and war games both come out of historical miniatures gaming of the mid 20th century, well, not just miniatures gaming, historical war gaming, right? Board, right. board oh. gaming or miniatures gaming. I have to just hold on for just a second as I get this out of my head, because I was thinking about it as we were talking about the monster hearts, you mm. mentioned it was a campaign and mm. I was like, oh, it's funny that we still use the word campaign to describe these things because it yeah. comes from Napoleonic war or like historical war gaming. War gaming. Right? Yeah, absolutely. It yeah. does. Absolutely. It does. There have been attempts Anyways. to change that nomenclature. No, no, most notably with the White Wolf World of Darkness games, which refer to them as chronicles rather than campaigns. But yeah, your reaction is basically everybody else's reaction, including mine. Yeah. So I can never say chronicle without air quotes around it. <laughs> My chronicle. You know, yeah, exactly. But, it sounds so pretentious. It does, but it's just what it is. It's a series of linked adventures, right? It is what it is. It is what it is. Yeah. Exactly. It's taken on its own meaning at this point. But yeah, it all comes out of wargaming. And so originally that was part of the the appeal of wargaming was that you're a history nerd you're you're interested in the american civil war let's say and as we've discussed before historical wargaming is a great entry point to learning more about that period that wargames themselves don't really teach you about the period but what you end up doing around the game in terms of preparing for it or even just reading up on aspects of this battle or this whatever you're simulating will often lead you down these paths of finding out more fascinating information about history and that sort of thing. Yeah. And so when fantasy, I'll just say fantasy is the sort of non-historical gaming, right? Fantasy gaming, mm -hmm. when that started up, there was actually a huge split in the hobby community because a lot of historical war gamers were like, you're just making this up. This has no basis in reality. You're inventing lore. That's <laughs> stupid. So there was a huge split there. A lot of historical right. war gamers didn't like turn their noses up at D&D &D for that very reason. But there was that was the precedent. It really goes back to I'm not going to get too far into this, but there's a guy named Tony Bath in the 1950s who did war games set in the in Robert E. Howard's Hyboria setting from Conan, the Hyborian Age. Go on. Go on. <laughs> and uh, yeah, look him up. We'll put him in the show notes. Really fascinating little side history of the development of gaming. But it's largely out of his games that the idea of a campaign originated because he ran this like, I think it was like decades long narrative campaign, basically based on all these games he was organizing with his buddies. Wow. So he used, he, he was reading the Conan stories and he went, wow, there's like a lot of lore here that I can apply to my war games, even though this stuff never really happened, right? Now, when D&D &D comes out, when fantasy role-playing games become a thing, the interesting thing to me about this is that the initial assumption from pretty much everybody on the game design side of things was nobody is going to want to pay money for something that we make up lore-wise. Right. They just want to pay money for the game itself to tell you how to make characters and run the game. But it, wow. they're going to want to make their own worlds 
that's why D and D was and continues to be to some extent very much like a fantasy toolbox approach initially it was completely that it it had an implied setting because you had elves and hobbits and red martians from the world of barsoom and whatever else gygax was obsessed with that he threw into the game but at the same time it was hey do whatever you want i was just watching a video on the history of the monk class and that came about because One of the guys who worked at TSR really liked the Kung Fu series with David Carradine. And he's like, I want a Kung Fu guy in my D&D game. There was no attempt to justify it. There would be nowadays like the monks come from this one part of the game world. And they're just, no, it's just a guy who knows knows Kung Fu. Cool. Right. Boom. Boom. Here's the class. It's up to you to decide how that fits into your world, basically. That was D&D. That with most early role-playing games, Traveler, which was the first widely successful sci-fi RPG was the same way where it was like this is just rules for running sci-fi space exploration games. We're not going to tell you what the universe or galaxy is. That's up to you. You can do whatever you want with it. And I don't want to jump too far ahead here but when we uh, like so when did we start seeing when did we start seeing the official stuff? Because I know we've talked earlier on the show about things like like Greyhawk and Blackmore and how it was like the campaign setting, air quotes, right. was like, there's a fountain with some snakes. And that was like all it had. <laughs> and in fact, it was just like, here's a bunch of character classes that we use in our home games. Yeah. So, <laughs> By the way, I pull the fountain with snakes because that's all I remember about Blackmore. <laughs> that, there's a, that there's a fountain that endlessly produces snakes. That does tell you quite a bit about the game world right there. I guess yeah. so. It really does. Yeah. We've got <laughs> a real snake lore. problem in that world. <laughs> Jesus. All right, so, yeah, when did we start seeing this? Because obviously they were fools. People yeah. do want to buy this thing. Oh, yeah. It gets even more knavish and foolish because... <laughs> Basically, very early on is the answer to your question. The One of the first post-D&D releases from TSR was a, a game called Empire of the Petal Throne that was this really deluxe game setting combined with the D&D rules. I think the Ooh. modern equivalent would be if it retailed for about 100 bucks for this like box set. Wow. Yeah, really, really uh, over the top. So not a lot of people bought it. But it, cool name, though. Cool name, though. Yeah. Unfortunately, the author's a fascist, as has recently come to light. Oh. Yeah. So I can't really <laughs> recommend it, sadly. It is a fact of history. But more to the point, because that really didn't get a lot of traction, but that was mostly because of the cost. But then this other group that was running D&D a lot had started to develop their own home setting, as everyone did in those days. And they thought it was pretty cool and got this idea of publishing it. Like, what if we publish certain elements of our game world? Would people buy it? So they went to TSR and they said, what would you say to publishing our setting? And they were literally laughed out of the room. Like it was it was literally like a, yeah, just go for it, guys. We don't give Naves. a shit. Yeah, because you're right. going to go ahead and waste your money, basically was the attitude. And so this was a group that they formed a company called Judges Guild. And they started publishing their own material, I think, in like 76, 77, somewhere around there. So only a couple of years after D&D right. come out. Yes. D&D came out in 74. And yeah, so the first thing they published was a, something called The City-State of the Invincible Overlord. That is a cool name as well. Right. <laughs> yes. And Matt Colville revitalized that. 
with his when he started doing when what was it called MCDM mm-hmm. when they started doing their actual play thing his whole thing was like the invincible overlord you know oh really and I think yeah and so like him calling back into that and revitalizing it get into a second life pretty interesting little shout out there yeah absolutely. yeah yeah absolutely and that was the first not only was that the first like widely available D D setting lore supplement but it was also the first city supplement, it, as the name implies. It described this whole city, and they had this whole city right. map with every single building keyed to what was in that building and the whole thing. So, awesome. of course, it sold like gangbusters. People loved it. And suddenly TSR's, what's that? Okay. Oh, <laughs> I think you're going to need a license to publish this because we're going to need a... Daddy needs a cut yeah, suddenly. Yeah, of course. So to answer your question, very early on, actually, we started to see commercially available settings and the market was there. Now, it still took a while for a lot of companies to figure that out and then figure out how to do it. So like Travelers, another example where they, even though it was this sort of toolbox game, they had their home setting, which was called the Imperium. And whenever they wrote a scenario or had something that touched on anything like material, like a book of ships, for example, or whatever, (laughs) it would have these references to the Imperium in it. So as you, as the game line developed, and this gets into lore bloat here already, as the game line develops, you go from having zero implied setting to by the time you've bought all the supplements, you have this fully developed setting that's coming out through what they're supplying from their home campaign, basically. Right. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Putting the cart, putting the tracks before the cart almost. Yeah. Yeah. Like laying tracks, like a Wile E. Coyote situation. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) Just laying it down. And so with D&D, yeah, we've talked about Greyhawk. We talked about Blackmore. These were not real settings in any way, shape or form. Even the initial like official attempts at a setting like the Greyhawk, like the Greyhawk folio, I think, was the first right. game world that TSR published. And that was literally a folio. It was a 32 page staple bound book that just told you in very brief thumbnail sketches what all the nations of Greyhawk were and then had this gorgeous double sized poster map of the world, you know. Wow. And, and in fact, I just recently read that that was Gary Gygax's home campaign and when they were right. like, let's publish something, he was he said, OK, we need a world map. How big are our poster maps? So they, he got a couple of those like blank poster map sheets and then just sketched in the rest of the world to fit the sheets, which is why would, if you look at a map of Greyhawk, <laughs> it's like almost like a square because it fits the poster map perfectly. Like the coastline fits <laughs> the dimensions of the poster maps perfectly. My you God. Know? I know. Give this man money. That's, that's how the sausage is made. It's never pretty. You know? Like, that's very true. Um, so, you know, so then what ends up happening with D&D is that eventually we get the Forgotten Realm. And that was another case of that where it was this guy, Ed Greenwood, who had his home campaign, which he called the Forgotten Realms, which like a lot of gamers in the 70s was based on his wannabe pulp fantasy novels that he would write for himself. <laughs> For his own right. amusement. Sorry, I don't mean to call you. <laughs> no, no, no this, is, this is not a pretty episode. <laughs> <laughs> and anyway, so then he started writing articles for Dragon Magazine, which was the main gaming magazine in those days. And he would write an article and say seven magical swords. 
right? And it was just seven magical swords that you could put in your own D&D campaign. However, much like with Traveler, he would include these little references to his world. So it's, oh, when Elminster, Elminster the wizard first described this sword, or this sword is taken from the horde of the great worm Zazagax or whatever. Yeah. And people were kind of like, hey, tell me more about this world that you're implying, you know? Right. And uh, and so then he writes more. And so then after TSR booted Gygax, they, there's a hostile takeover. He's out. They're like, we don't necessarily want to keep publishing his game world. Screw that, even though we own it. Where, what else can we do? So they go to Ed Greenwood and they say, hey, can you like write a box set about your setting that people seem to like so well? And he said, sure. And that's basically how the Forgotten Realms started on its path to eventually becoming the official D&D setting. That didn't happen for another 20 years or something. But right. o- over the course of that time, it was just supplement after supplement. I personally experienced it in the 90s. There were just so many yeah. different books on the Forgotten Realms. You just pick a spot on the map and there's going to be a supplement for it that you can go out and get and it's going to tell you all this stuff and, you know. Yeah, and for those of you who may not know the Forgotten Realms by name, you've probably heard of some of the characters or items from it, even if you don't realize it. Like characters like Dritz Doerd and the mm-hmm. Dark Elf Ranger that everyone wants. Like, that's a character, that's a creation of a product of the Forgotten Realms, I should say. Yeah, of every named dragon damn near in Dungeons & Dragons history <laughs> is coming out of Ed Green one. Elminster, the Wizard, Mordenkainen, Xanathar, all these guys are all Forgotten Realms characters. Yeah. Yeah. And oftentimes there were things that were developed either as independent pieces of lore from somebody's home game or they originally appeared as their own setting that later got folded into the Forgotten Realms. So this is another. So we can get into talking about lore bloat at this point now that I've gone over the background a bit. But this is what we're talking about. And I said earlier, it's metastasizing lore. So there's this issue of, okay. People don't want to just have the rules of a game and no no background whatsoever. But at the same time, there's it's on a spectrum where it's like, how much is too much? And that's where we get into talking about lore bloat. Because, for example, you have, let's go back to Forgotten Realms, you have the Dragon Magazine articles. Somebody who was a collector of those articles could probably piece together some idea of the important characters in the realms and some legendary events or whatever, but they really don't have enough there to properly set their game in the realms. They would, they'd have to extrapolate it so much that it would become their own home brood setting anyway. So then you have the 1987 box set, which comes out and that's pretty spare by lore standards. It is just a couple of booklets and a map. It's more than what Greyhawk gave you, but it is still pretty it's leaving a lot of space there and right. that's that's my kind of sweet spot personally and that but then there's demand for more information that's where the bloat comes in right yes so when we talk about lore bloat again so it, from what i'm understanding yeah it is this dissemination of lore fictional non history however accurate or inaccurate But it's in all of these places, I think, of Warhammer, where 
You've got the lore from the core book, which is like this big history of everything that's happened since the creation of the universe. Mm -hmm. And then you've got all of the lore from your battle tome and my battle tome and the 16 other battle tomes that are out there. And none of them share the same information. Mm -hmm. Some of them might refer to similar areas. For example, in Warhammer right now, the new Warcry starter set is taking place in the Gnarlwood, mm. something that we've known about since the beginning of Age of Sigmar six years ago, mm. but n like almost no information has been published about it, just mm. tidbits here and there, and now we're finally getting a full thing of it. So, that, so it's hard to track down, and it's hard to keep track of, and especially with Warhammer, you get a lot of the unreliable narrator, a lot of point of view. This is how the lore is being disseminated to you is through a guy on the ground. And he might have or they might have some kind of backwards view of it. They might have some kind of, I don't know, false information. And then later, 20 years later, it gets retconned or some stupid shit. Mm -hmm. So... This is where the lore bloat really gets gnarly. This is where it becomes a bad thing to me. And that is a criticism that I have of Warhammer, be it Age of Sigmar or 40K. It's just, imp it's it, the, uh, okay, so <laughs> miniature tangent here. Okay. But like the bad thing about it to me is that when these things start going, when you have 20, 10, 20, 30 years of lore and things start getting retconned, Ratted, fixed, quote unquote, all this stuff, or they start, in, or they start being like, "Oh yeah, that was redacted from the Imperium. They don't want you to see that." And now we have blah, blah, blah. They've come up with all these made-up reasons to fix their earlier stuff that they don't like anymore. All of a sudden, it it goes in either one of two directions. It goes the direction that it should go in is, "Oh, this is a world that's a huge playground, and anything is true. Anything is true." Because it could have been like m the stuff that I make up is just as valid as everything in the books mm -hmm. because it's what's in the books is going to get redacted. It's going to get retconned. It's going to get changed. It's from somebody who's dead now. All these. Unfortunately, where it seems to go for Warhammer, mm. at least, is, oh, no, all the things that I want are true and all the things that I don't want are not. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. I'm thinking specifically I'm nailing on female Space Marine haters right now. <laughs> the, the people who, because they, so for female Space Marine, our listeners will get into this eventually because I want to start hitting on some hot topics in this podcast too. Female Space Marines are always talked about because there's, in the lore, talking about the lore bloat, in the lore, only men can be space marines because they go through all these genetic mutations and blah, 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 blah. Right. But in the product line, female space marines were around in the beginning. So what's true? Where does the lore, where does the lore start and where, do, and where does it end? You know what I'm saying? So yeah. for me, that's what I think of when I think of lore bloat is this like, is what do you mean when you like, where's my factual information and does it matter? Yeah. Yeah. And that, that gets into another term. I'm going to throw out some more jargon here. So yeah, I see your lexicon, but it's metaplot. Ooh. Right. And this was a term that got thrown around a lot. This is the term that kind of preceded lore in my world, at least in my experience, because this was a term that got thrown around a lot in the 90s. And I think it was a an evolution of 
this developing cycle of, oh, gamers want setting information. Okay, cool. Let's publish stuff for them. And so initially it was just like, here's what's going, here's a source book on this particular kingdom or whatever, do with it as, as you will. But then it turned into almost like coming back full circle around to historical wargaming, where it was, what if we also developed a timeline of what's going to happen? And that was particularly with TSR publishing tie-in novels for their D&D IP, where it was like a novel would come out. Perfect example, but the first game world I ever got for D&D was Dark Sun, which is this kind of like very pulpy, almost like Mad Max treatment of like standard fantasy tropes. Yeah. Very like Bronze Age kind of vibe to it as well. And it spends the bulk of the setting material, bulk of the lore in there is centering on this one city state because it's a world of city states and it's centering on this one city state going in all this detail about all the like the power structure and the sorcerer king who rules over it with an iron fist and all this other stuff. Then what they did is like they put that out almost immediately followed by a tie-in novel that was focused on that city-state, of course, but had the heroes in that novel toppling the Sorcerer King and setting themselves up as a new, like, sort of republic form of government. So then the first module, first scenario that comes out for Dark Sun replicates the events of the novel but puts the player characters in place of the novel's heroes, but still has the same outcome because the novel is determining the meta plot of the game world, which is that the Sorcerer King has been deposed and now the city-state is the first one in the world that doesn't have a Sorcerer King ruling over it and it's run by the people and all this other kind of stuff. And so all of this material that subsequently comes out after that assumes that to be true. So if you're just running a campaign using the box set, fine, you can do whatever you want. However, if you go out and you pick up the fourth adventure that comes out and suddenly it's referring to all this stuff that's not in that box, you're like, wait a minute, what's going on? I don't even know what's happening here. Or if you haven't read the novel, God forbid, or whatever. So Metaplot became this means to sell product as well as to develop the lore of the setting. Once again, going back to World of Darkness, this was, I think it was the Vampire Vampire the Masquerade and the World of Darkness games in the 90s, probably the most notorious for Metaplot because like they're very character driven settings. It's all about who are the different vampires in this city or where right. tribes or whatever. And every single supplement that came out would modify that in some way or add to the lore in a way. Oh, oh it turns out this vampire has actually been alive for 1500 years and here's his whole backstory, blah, blah, blah. And it was <laughs> telling you what was going on in the world. And then you would have, God forbid this character died in your chronicle. Cause then, <laughs> Because then, oh, no, they're suddenly they've shown up in this supplement and they're doing major important things in the world. So then you'd have to, like, somehow figure out how you're going to make that true in your game. And people got sick of that shit pretty fast. But it was a weird form of lore bloat because it was like narrative lore bloat. Yeah, this is effectively what we see with, like, DLC for video games. Think about (laughs) Skyrim and Elder Scrolls Online and stuff like that, where every bit of... DLC comes out as like this huge narrative arc and all of a sudden if if you picked up (laughs) if David for some reason you were like hey I really want to get into Elder Scrolls Online I'd be like okay all right, let's play (laughs) and then we gotta get 
we got to get the last 10 years worth of DLC to get. So it's time to pick up the season pass, baby, and start taking notes. Because if we want to understand the world, which is something that's important for people like you and I, players that are that invested in what is happening in this world that these authors worked to bring into existence. I want to be able to ingest the shit that they're giving me (laughs) and be like, and understand it and appreciate it. I want to be able to appreciate the stuff that the authors and the writers of the game are working so hard to bring in, even if it's just like a little nod to their home game or whatever. Like, that's cool. Like, I'll take it and I'll use it in mine. And I think that's cool. I think that's part of this big shared experience that we have of tabletop role-playing games. Mm -hmm. I think about games like Forbidden Lands, which has a lot of lore in it, Tolkien lore, like a dark side of Tolkien almost. And there's these big overarching narrative, like events that you can have in your world that all go deep into the lore and all that stuff is really cool to bring in and then i can go over and talk with other people this is the cool Mm -hmm. thing about lore bloat Mm -hmm. is that you get to communicate with the other people in your community yes and be like oh hey did you are you're playing forbidden lands dope did you get the did you get this item from the raven king or did you learn this little bit from like the god worm or whatever like all this kind of stuff and you get to build this like community of nerds who are getting down on on the lord i think that's like the good part about about lore bloat to me or if they haven't had it yet you can be like oh i don't want to spoil it then and then for me i would get hyped up and be like oh i gotta run forbidden lands again now because i want to get to this part yeah for sure i want to get back to that talking about forbidden lands because i think it's emblematic of how lore is handled a lot today but i also just want to say to that point that is very much double-edged sword in, and this is also really bad side of lore bloat so we've sort of been implying that we don't like lore bloat because it creates right. this <laughs> it creates like too much crap that you have to wade through or else there's a meta plot involved that's basically taking away your agency as the gm but the other piece of lore bloat that I really don't like and that speaks to this podcast, one of our one of our central tenets, is that it becomes a method of gatekeeping. Right? Uh, and, and this is a huge problem with the world of Glorantha, which is the setting for RuneQuest, as well as other games. Because of the weird publication history of that game, which we'll probably get into whenever we do a RuneQuest system spotlight, you have this sort of cadre of grizzled old Glorantophiles <laughs> who have been... Shout out to the cadre. Shout out to the cadre. <laughs> what up, cadre? Jesus. Who, but they really are because they camp out on these online spaces, these social media groups or message boards, Mm-mm. wherever. Mm-mm. And they've been following every single bit of Glorantha lore that has come out since 1979. And Glorantha is a very deep, very rich setting. It's very intentionally modeling like ancient civilizations. So you have tons of pantheons with literally hundreds of gods, all kinds of different cultures, nations. It's what people like about the setting. However, when I was trying to start boning up on Glorantha seven or eight years ago, it was like when I first started to get into the setting, 
I would go to these online spaces and people would be and I'd have the basics like I read over the basics of the setting. But then you go to these spaces and people are throwing around these like names of gods, cults, locations, characters, all this stuff that you've never even heard of that are just super obscure and it feels completely impenetrable. Just right. Absolutely impenetrable. And this is an acknowledged problem with Glorantha. Like even people who are deep into Glorantha, who are trying to be gatekeepers, will tell you this is an issue because right. it's very that's why they did a RuneQuest starter set. But here's an easy way to get into it, because it's one of those settings where it's like, well, in order to tell you about this thing, I'm going to have to go back 200 years and start talking about this thing. <laughs> it's a little bit like talking about actual real world history. Right. Yeah. And that really becomes a problem when that kind of stuff is purposefully weaponized against people who are trying to enter the hobby. Exactly. That's the big one. That's the. Oh, you like the Misfits? Name three of their albums. Yeah. So exactly. you're, ro- you're rolling Misfits lore. And uh-huh. like, you that's, that is, that's a big problem. And it's funny too, because with RuneQuest and Glorantha, like from very early on, there's even been a little acronym of YGWV, which is Your Glorantha Will Vary. This was something Greg Stafford uh-huh. was the progenitor of the Glorantha setting. And he might have coined that. I don't know. But he was certainly a proponent of it. He never said anything about canon. He never said anything about this is how it should be. It's no, your Glorantha will vary. It's whatever you want out of this setting. And you can say that till the cows come home. And yet there are still people who insist that there has to be this one specific interpretation or they just love to show off how much they know, quote unquote. Right. And I think that's the thing is people invest so much time into learning yes. the lore of things. It's like Star Wars fans, Star Trek fans, a lot of these folks, even like Middle Earth aficionado who have read yeah. the Silmarillion or whatever. And they'll talk <laughs> about Gilgalad or whoever. And if you're just this sort of, I've seen the movies kind of. Yeah. Like who Gilgalad? Who Ungoliant? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> exactly. And I think that just to get back to it, like that's when we're looking at like how much lore is too much. I think it's very interesting. You see this push and pull in the game industry in regards to how to approach it. So like with Vampire the Masquerade, for example, they put out a 20th anniversary edition in Mm. 2011. And it collated all of the stuff that had come out for the various editions up to that point. It brought the game back out of cryo freeze, more or less, or out of torpor, as they would say in the game. Uh, Right that in your chronicle. That's right. Oh, yeah. No, the game has its own Lex Talionis that goes into oh. all the vampire-specific <laughs> terminology. And there's the old Argot versus the street slang. And oh, yeah, oh, it's a whole thing. Of course. It's a whole thing. But and that's cool. That's cool. I it is cool. It. It's fun. It's fun to engage with. And this is it's like lore is like junk food in a way. And I think that's where the, we get back to fluff because it's like eating cotton candy. It's like you can't stop. And then you make yourself sick. <laughs> you look but, like that little girl. The gif of the girl is freaking out. with the. <laughs> yes, exactly. <laughs> we'll put that in the discord in the show. We'll notes. That, yeah, in the show notes. Yeah. <laughs> I'll be our, our, our icon for this. For this. Oh, there you go. Perfect. Our mascot. But yeah, with the 20th anniversary edition, it was really interesting what they did because this was a game that was like peak lore. Okay, this was like Lorantha, except they never said your vampire will vary. They were like, Mm. no, this is how it is. And 
by the time we come around to 2011, what's interesting is that there have been all these indie games that have come out in the preceding 10 years that have basically gone back around and said, hey, it's whatever you want. Like Powered by the Apocalypse comes out of Apocalypse World, which explicitly said, we're not even going to tell you what the Apocalypse was because it doesn't matter. You're just a bunch of scroungers living a generation after that happened. And it's all legend anyway. You're all the kids at the end of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, like <laughs> telling your story about Captain Walker or whatever. Like, <laughs> that tanker. That's right. Like, it's just saying it doesn't matter. What matters is what's going on in the game. And you can make up the lore as you play. Who cares? It's just as true for you as it would be if some dude in Lake Geneva is writing it on his selectric typewriter or whatever. And we talked about that a little bit in our Tolkien episode, too, mm -hmm. about world building. And Mm -hmm. actually, it's cooler for me and more Mm -hmm. pulpy because I like Mm -hmm. Conan and stuff to be like, you're discovering the lore. The players are discovering the lore as the characters are. Because I think that's cooler. There's something, there's just something more interested about, interesting about that. And of course, if you want to hear more thoughts, you can check out World Building with, oh. uh, with Tolkien, one of our earlier World Building episodes. with Grandpa Tolkien, I think is what we call yeah, it. Yeah, something like that. <laughs> <laughs> so what's interesting to me with the Vampire 20th Anniversary Edition, and they continued this on into the fifth edition, the current edition, is basically they said, hey, we're going to give you a lot of different versions of what the lore is. And it's up to you to decide what you want out of that and how you want to implement it. And we're not really going to mess with that with our releases. We're just going to go back to presenting source books that are going to tell you about this particular movement. They'll get into the history of things, but they won't necessarily say, this is what's going on. This is what happens with this person. They're going to show up later. And in fact, even in in 5th edition, which I don't have a lot of familiarity with, but I've looked through the PDFs and stuff. And there's even things where you can take certain experience packages. So you're building your vampire and you're saying, my vampire is 50 years old or whatever. They've been a vampire 50 years. Then you can take certain like aspects of vampire lore and you can say what you think happened during this particular historical event that occurred. Mm. What happened during the week of nightmares, for example? And then you decide what your character believes. And that may not even necessarily be true. It might be something you've heard or maybe a false memory or might be something that, you know, whatever. But it's your interpretation as what your character would tell other people in the game world. That's cool. That's really cool. Yeah, so... Let's look at the. Do we have anything else to say about like those counter examples? I know you said you wanted to get back to Forbidden Lands. What about Forbidden Lands? Made you want to? That's an exa- That that is an example of a counter example. <laughs> oh, <laughs> because like you're like, and I find it fascinating because it, it seems to be the latest evolution. So I think this is a good place oh. to, to land on. Is that I think this is the latest evolution of how a lot of game companies are approaching war now. We've tried the meta plot. No bueno. We've tried the drink from the fire hose approach, the forgotten <laughs> or Glorantha or what have you. That also is not great. It's not optimal yeah. for people. Nowadays, folks just don't have a lot of time to devote to like memorizing huge chunks of information. And uh-huh. then plus it has this sort of toxic outcome anyway in a lot of circumstances. So mm-hmm. at the same time, we don't just want to say, hey, man, whatever you want to do is totally cool. So the approach that I find fascinating that I think Forbidden Lands sort of typifies is what you're talking about, where it's, we're going to give you some chunks of lore, but at the same time, we're going to let you develop that how you want. Here's a big poster map and some stickers. 
and you can put those stickers down on this map. So, so you might be talking about the great worm or whatever, but your group decides where does the great worm's lair reside, yes. for example. Yes, yes. Know. In fact, because I'm an idiot, there's a, I looked at the Forbidden Lands map <laughs> and there was a part of me in the beginning when I first started playing, I was like, no, I have to know where the designers intended for this yes, to be. Right. And so I like, but that also led into a really cool interaction because, you know, I'm hopping on Reddit, looking at the Forbidden Lands Discord and whatever. And there's these huge forums and people discussing like <laughs> based on what's written here and this and that, we can assume that this location is on column A, row 10. And so it's really cool. Just this again, this like collaborative people you're not even gaming with are like analyzing the clues and trying to figure out where maybe these places best would be on the map. So I think mm -hmm. that's cool too. Exactly. it, And I really like that. I really like that approach. It's taking that your Marantha will vary yeah. philosophy, but like making it a little bit more explicit, right? Definitely. Definitely. Yeah. Because nobody's map is the same and anything can happen anywhere. That's the really cool thing about Forbidden Lands is that you could just be walking from one one town to the next and all of a sudden a, an abandoned mine pops up and it's got 300 procedurally generated rooms on the inside <laughs> all of a sudden it's oh wow like even the gm was like oh i didn't expect you guys to fall into a mega dungeon but here you are <laughs> and uh yeah so that kind of thing i really like and then of course the a lot of these supplements and extra books for forbidden lands it's oh you're in a dungeon you might find this book that's tied to this event that happened a thousand years ago when the blood mist was around and demons walked the earth and like mm -hmm. all and then you go and pick it up and like the gray wolf books or the white wolf books it's it's you meet some crazy like world changing npc later that you might kill you might not and they're like hey do you have Oh, I see that you have this ruby that, that one of the elven souls is trapped in. And all of a sudden it becomes this huge, oh my God, we didn't even know. So yeah, that kind of thing. I just wanted to give a quick shout out to another game called 13th Age, which Ooh. takes oh, a similar yeah. approach. And this is, I think, another way you can do it with lore, which is that they give you archetypes. And then Ooh. it's up to you to decide how those archetypes work in your world either with your own homebrew world or like the material they're putting out there. So like they'll, they might publish some setting book and they refer to one or two of these archetypes, but again, they'd keep it like generic. So the archetypes are the Archmage, the Crusader, the Diabolus, the Dwarf King, the Elf Queen, the Emperor, the Great Gold Worm, the High Druid, the Lich King, the Orc Lord, the Priestess, the Prince of Shadows, and the Three. And then they give you some like information on what that would look like. What is an Arch, what is the Archmage? What is the Emperor? Or what have you. But it's almost like a tarot card deck where you then can extrapolate out. So like the Elf Queen could literally be a Queen of the Elves, or it could be someone who just fulfills those archetypal being immortal and the most beautiful being of the world and wise beyond all years and but also a terrible as the dawn and all that other kind of stuff yeah, whatever yeah, yeah. so it's as long as that character fulfills those criteria it could be anything it could be like the ceo of a corporation if you were like Ooh. transferring it over into a modern setting or whatever it's obviously a 13 page fantasy game i, I don't want to say that it's a <laughs> universal system or anything but i'm just riffing here it's this idea it's an idea rather than 
and saying, oh, it's Belinda the Elf Queen or whatever. Right. You know? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, that's just one one other example of, I think, how Lore Bloat is being approached. So, yeah, we'll move into wrapping up here because I think we're seeing that as much as people like Lore, there we're still as a hobby and this goes for wargaming as well as role-playing games we're still figuring out ever since we diverged from that historical wargaming precedent where you have history capital h and we start getting into these sort of fantastical worlds even if it's set in our real world it's a world with vampires and werewolves and crap or whatever right. made up lore we're still figuring out 50 years on where is that sweet spot? How much detail is too much? Do you want something that's procedurally generated? Do you want something that's iconic and archetypal? Or do you want us to nail things down? Where are we on this spectrum? We're still asking that question, I think. And I think it's a good question to ask. And I think that everyone's going to have a different answer. I think there's going to be those kind of like Tolkien scholars that's going to be like, oh, no, I actually really like it when there's a thousand years of world history. I think back in one of our earlier episodes, too, in our world building episode, we talked about when do you start writing down all of your lore bloat? And a lot of people are like, oh, I guess at the beginning of the universe. But then you have to. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) But then you not only do you have to nail that down, but then somebody else has to learn it. I think that's where the problem comes in for me. I don't care about the beginning of the universe. My players aren't going to care about the beginning of the universe. And if they learn about this tidbit, it's probably going to be accidentally. And it's going to be because they probably failed a role looking for something relevant. And that's what (laughs) I gave them. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. And something you make up on the spot is just as valid as something that you extract from a 30 page deep dive on the history which yeah thank god that's a thing that i think has largely died is buying your setting guide in chapter one you know like five (laughs) thousand years ago and it's oh jesus (laughs) so how all right so final thoughts david yeah Yeah. give them to me all right final thoughts lore's lore is fascinating to me because it is simultaneously both a tool for good and a tool for evil. It yeah. really is. It really is like this sort of Promethean <laughs> sort of thing where it's like initially we didn't have it, period. It didn't exist. And then it was like, no, we want it. It's so easy to overdo it. And it just seems to be an ongoing conversation on, on every possible level. Like personally, what is too much lore for you personally? What is too much lore in terms of what's being put out there officially? What is too much just in general? And I don't think it's I don't think it's ever going to be answered, frankly. I don't think this is something we're ever going to land on right now. Like I said, the the trend is like giving you a little bit and letting you do the rest. I wouldn't be surprised if we see the pendulum swing back in the next five to 10 years to people demanding <laughs> metaplot again. Tell us what's going on in the world. Enough of this mammy right. pamby wishy-washy lore. <laughs> I want to know exactly what's happening with Prince so-and-so in this little kingdom here. Yeah, it's like I said, it's a back and forth. My personal sweet spot happens to be one where it's you're giving me just enough to run the game and then you're letting me fill in the blanks, fill in the details. Yeah. Obviously, this is informed by my early trauma with the Dark Sun setting and <laughs> the Metaplot environment I grew up in in the 90s and also just seeing latter-day gatekeeping going on in Glorantha, yeah. the Warhammer 40,000 universe, etc. I do think that, but at the same time, it's like there is consumer demand for this and it's one of the ways that game companies stay in business is by publishing source books. Yeah. So it's, uh, I guess my final thoughts are it's complicated. 
It's good. <laughs> Congratulations, everyone. You just spent an hour listening to that. Right. <laughs> for that really deep insight there. I know. You know what, though? At least we have a better understanding of where lore comes from in our gaming spaces. Yeah. And potentially even where it's going and yeah. the different kinds of ways that it's handled. I think all of this stuff is good to know and it's good to talk about. I yeah. th- and the whole point here is that we want this to be a conversation. I don't think it was ever going to be a case that we'd land on something at the end. And I don't want that to necessarily be the case because I want people to, I want the, I want to have conversation bloat about lore bloat. Right. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Yeah. I'm in the, I'm in the bloat boat as well with you, dude. I think, uh, <laughs> I think, uh, I think this is exactly where, like what you said, it's a good thing and it's a bad thing. And it maybe it's neither good nor bad. It just is what it is. Mm-hmm. And everyone's going to handle it differently and everyone's going to prefer it differently. And I'm really excited to hear about what our listeners have to say about this kind of stuff. So if you guys have anything to say, if you can think of some particular examples of how the games or world's fictional settings that you really love or hate handle their lore, let us know because we want to know. We want to be able to talk about it. You can always hit us up on, on Twitter. You can join our Discord and join the conversation there. We're also over on Patreon at patreon.com slash gatecrasherpod. All this stuff will be in the show notes. So come hang out and talk about lore with us because <laughs> we like doing it. And I think that's all that I have to say for today. Yes. <laughs> Is that it? Oh, yeah. Okay, good. All right. We'll run a little long, so we'll wrap it yeah. up. Yeah. Yeah, the the load episode loaded out. I almost thought about making this a two-parter, but I was like, no, it makes more sense if it's just one really long episode. Yeah, (laughs) we'd look like damn fools if we made a two-parter about Lord Blood. I know. So join us next week, listener, when we talk about... What are we talking about? Oh, Christ's sake. We need to get better about this. (laughs) I need to add that to our outline. Figure out what the next episode is before you start recording. Okay. What about slow burn and horror and fantasy? Love it. Let's do it. Let's do that. Join us next week when we talk about the slow burn in horror and fantasy games, which is going to make your gaming, for me, way cooler, at least. Mm -hmm. I'll like your game more (laughs) (laughs) if it's got a slow burn. That's the important thing, really. (laughs) Does Kenny like your game or not? Exactly. Join us. Yeah. Subscribe $5 a month or more, and you can give me a synopsis of your game and I'll tell you if I like it or not <laughs> on Patreon. <laughs> I think that's for OnlyFans. That's where we'll start up our Oh, there we go. Thank we'll, you. We'll do campaign ratings. <laughs> campaign ratings. All right, thank <laughs> you guys for listening and we'll see you next week when we talk about the slow burn and horror and fantasy games. Yes. <laughs> and Or you can wait a little while longer to listen to that one. Hey-oh! Oh! <laughs>